0: Hey, I'm Dr. Rob, welcome to Biblical Genetics. I am on my back porch today, enjoying a beautiful, cool May morning. I have a day off because I'm going to Tennessee this weekend, so it's a Friday, I've got the whole day to myself. I said, I need to film something. In fact, this is a second filming. I tried to uh, do this episode uh, two weekends ago. I was on the border of Virginia and West Virginia, speaking of some churches up there, and I was sitting in a friend's house and are literally right next to the Appalachian Trail so on my way out monday morning i pulled off at one of the uh the trail access points and i walked up to something called the kefir oak it was a local landmark and all locals were like oh the Keffer oak the oak tree blah 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 and they're all like super impressed and so i get up there and i was gonna film my episode and i wasn't very impressed with the tree it wasn't as big as i thought it should be for an impressive tree i've seen bigger oaks it's the second largest oak tree on the appalachian trail okay it doesn't mean it's the second largest oak tree i've ever seen Uh, in fact i've cut down oak tree larger than that it was dead it was on one of my neighbor's properties um and he asked me if i would like to take this tree down Said sure i needed some firewood i didn't realize which tree he was asking me this thing was six feet wide at the base it was like 90 feet tall in fact i've got some examples of boards left over from this tree i've um this is about 15 years ago i had several years worth of firewood I made a floor out of it. I made molding out of it. I made a table out of it. I, I made some of the shelving that you've seen in some other Biblical X episodes out of it. It's just woodworking is a hobby. It's a lot, it's a fun hobby. In fact, today I've got a laser engraver that someone lent to me uh, going and I'm doing some experiments. I made a little kitty cat. That was my first one That's pretty good. And I tried to etch a, a picture of my daughter on this board, but uh, it did not work. It's just black. So my beautiful daughter did not come through. I'm gonna try again. But this is fun i love working with wood it's interesting sort of actually it's not wood's actually kind of boring it's beautiful sure but it is just a little bit boring because you know what does a tree do it it exchanges carbon dioxide with the atmosphere it it releases um oxygen it releases water you know we, we figured out how trees work a long time ago But it takes that carbon dioxide and makes wood and that's fascinating enough i mean the the production of wood is is really cool chemically kinda i know people get their phds in like wood but i'm glad i didn't get my phd in wood i think i would have been bored to tears the one thing the trees do though which is absolutely amazing is photosynthesis photosynthesis is simply um the least predictable chemical reaction to happen in the biological world it should never happen it's too complicated you're talking about biological molecules that are capturing photons that should destroy the biological molecule but they're all lined up together so they can do a hot potato hand off that the energy from that photon to a series of um, chemicals so that any single chemical doesn't get destroyed by the energy and they pump hydrogen atoms across a membrane. They use that to make ATP and the ATP is used for all the energy of wood production. Okay. That's fascinating, but I don't know. Are trees really that interesting above ground? Ah, see this is my bridge point where I want to talk about what happens in the cell and biology. Most of the interesting things that happen in a forest happen underground. And these are things that remained hidden from us for a very long time. Since just dawn of humanity. We've known trees. It didn't take too long to figure out the trees grow tall. They grow wide. They add mass over time. Then we figured out um, that they absorb carbon dioxide a very long time ago and make that into wood. But in recent years, in recent decades, we've been learning about this incredible ecosystem under the ground. I mean, it's like a civilization under the ground. The trees are talking to other trees of the same and different species. They're talking to plants. They're talking to fungi. They're talking to bacteria. And they're like, Hey, Mr. Mr. Fungi, um, you have any molybdenum? I need some molybdenum. I got some sugar, and they're like doing exchange of minerals across the tree root as the tree is communicating with the things in the soil. In fact, the things wouldn't even be in the soil if it wasn't for the presence of the tree. So all this really cool, amazing things have remained hidden for us for a long time, and that's my bridge point to talk about the world of RNA, which has remained hidden for us for a long time. Now. I got slammed on one of my recent videos. Now, granted, I don't pay attention to the comments on most of my videos because, you know, I know there's just a bunch of trolls out there and it's not worth my time to engage with people who aren't going to fairly engage back. So I don't usually pay attention to the comments. But one particular person was ragging on me for um, basically rejecting neo-Darwinism, the thought that you could have a mutation in a protein-coding gene that creates a new trait or a new phenotype that natural selection can then act upon. And I'm like, dude, man, that's so 20th century. I and mean, this is the year 2023. You're talking about 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s ideas? Now, granted, back in the day, we didn't know how things worked, and life seemed kind of simple, and it kind of made sense that if you had a mutation in a protein-coding gene, that that would do something that natural selection could act upon. Okay, fine. But they realized pretty quickly that most mutations don't have a giant effect. And then they realized in the late sixties that only about 2% of the genome codes for protein. So in the early seventies, they came up with a junk DNA hypothesis that, oh yeah, well, most of the genome can mutate at random, but only the important as the protein coding regions mutations happen there. That's where selection can either amplify or reduce a trait based on if it's good or bad for the organism. Yeah, that didn't work too well in the modern era, because now, after like the ENCODE project and multiple other things, we realize that most of the information in the cell is in the non-coding regions, the so-called junk DNA regions. And so, you know, I can't fault someone for not knowing what I'm about to share with you, because I mean, I'd mean i learned a lot of this myself, like this month. I've just spent some time doing a deep dives when I'm not working with wood or other projects, um, study RNA. I read multiple scientific papers, uh, multiple web articles and one, per- one in- incredibly important modern book, which I'm going to be reviewing for the journal of creation when I'm finished with it, which is extremely laborious and hard to get through because it has so much detail and learning things, learning things, uh, shocking things, learning more things, learning things that are just overwhelming. There's so many different types of RNA that it's really hard to keep up with it, but it is abundantly clear that the Neo-Darwinian thought that you can have a simple change of a letter in the genome that natural selection is going to act upon is moribund. It's passé. It's an old idea that doesn't really work anymore because there's so much more information and the information is at different levels. I remember uh, Dr. John Sanford's book, uh, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. He had this brilliant illustration, the princess and the P illustration, where he said, The mutation is like a pea underneath a mattress, underneath another mattress, underneath another mattress, underneath another mattress, and the organism or the princess is sleeping on top of the mattress. And if she can't detect that mutation, then natural selection can't do anything. And it was a brilliant idea because you're talking about environmental differences, um, other genes that are affecting whether or not this this mutation has any effect, uh, epigenetic differences, You know, exercise, diet, even attitude and spiritual, psychological sort of things all come into play here when you're talking about whether or not a single mutation can produce something the natural selection acts act upon. So the princess and the pea and all the stacked up mattresses is brilliant. But that was an idea that, that can be even put on steroids when we talk about RNA. Most of the work done in the cell is on the level of RNA. Most of the information is packed into the non-coding regions. Most of the control of the genes happens with RNA, for example. As I'm in graduate school, I'm learning about transcription factors. These are proteins that attach to DNA just upstream of a gene. And if they're there, they can start, they can basically trigger transcription of the gene, which then can be turned into protein. But transcription factors have a very small recognition window, and they're not very specific. They can theoretically stick at other places in the genome. So how come they only stick there? Well, now we learn that there are um, RNAs called enhancers that will attach very specifically to the DNA and then grab the trans- I can't say that. transcription factor and stick it onto the DNA so that the gene can be turned on. So in the end, it wasn't the proteins that were doing the work. It was the RNA that was doing the work. There are many, many other examples like this you probably are familiar with transfer, or it's a messenger RNA. We'll start with that one. When a gene is made into RNA, it's made into something called messenger RNA. Now, in higher organisms, our introns have to be cut out, and then the exons have to be joined together, and then that can be translated into protein in the ribosome. But the messenger RNA is basically what's going to turn into a protein. And then it the cell uses things called transfer rnas a transfer rna has a little three-letter code at the bottom called a codon which sticks onto the messenger rna in a specific three-letter spot and on top of the transfer rna there's an amino acid the amino acid is added to the growing protein strand and that's how we get a protein but the machine that does that the ribosome is a very complex combination of proteins and rna so we have ribosomal rna we have transfer RNA and we have messenger RNA. Those are the RNAs most people are familiar with, but now we know there are things called micro RNAs. There are long known non-coding RNAs or link LNC RNAs. These are the most important thing. I want to talk about these specifically because when they were first discovered, nobody knew what to do with them. They weren't supposed to be there. Uh, the g- information in cells must be in the protein coding regions, not in this other stuff. So they just said, oh, these are long, non-coding RNAs, and they threw them into a basket. And now we're learning that there's lots of different types. In fact, they should not all be called the same thing. They, they should s- forget that long non-coding uh, designation, throw it away. And let's talk about specific types of RNA. Because there are some long non-coding RNAs that are a couple hundred letters long. And there's some that are tens of thousands of letters long. There are entire long, non, long non-coding RNAs that look and act just like protein-coding genes. They have introns and exons. They're alternately spliced depending upon the environmental conditions or the state of development of the organism. I mean, they look like genes, but you can't take the information there and turn it into a protein. It would be a nonsense protein. It has nothing to do at all with the production of proteins, and yet it looks just like a gene? What is that thing? Uh, one of them in particular is called exist it's like seventeen thousand letters long i think and it's got i think eight exons incredibly important thing that's happening in the cell and we knew nothing about it there's a couple of reasons for that the early geneticists can't be faulted for focusing on on dna it was easy to sequence it's a much more stable chemical and it's just easier to work with Uh, one of the problems with uh, dna or RNA, I should say, is that it has a lot more than four letters. Now, DNA, you know, A, C, G, and T. And sometimes the, uh, the uh, C's can be methylated, so you have another letter there also. But it's really just A, C, G, and T. Adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. Well, RNA has A, C, G, and U. Instead of thymine, there's a uracil. But that's only when it's first transcribed. Hundreds of chemical modifications happen to RNA. One of the uh, big things we see in RNA is inocene take an, an adenine and translate it or chemically modify it into inosine. Inosine is really common in RNA, but so are lots of other modifications. And every time you modify one of the, one of the nucleotides, it's a different nucleotide, it's a different chemical. And so sequencing RNA is really hard. One of the reasons why RNA technology was held back is okay. Besides the fact that it's an unstable molecule, uh, it's not as easy to extract it's it's really hard to sequence well recently people have turned the nanopore sequencers on rna nanopore sequencing is amazing you take a charged plate with a little micro hole in it and you can grab a dna and pull a piece of dna and pull it through the hole and then this charged plate as the letters are going through the charges on the acs gs and t's you can read them and say oh say a c c c g g g t c c a a a c c g g t that's really amazing well, they've been tuning that to work better with RNA now. And so they haven't figured out all of it, but a lot of the letters that we see in RNA can now be sequenced directly. And that has been a huge boon for RNA technology because now we can see what's happening in the cell a lot more easily. Um, but it was just, it was slowed down. I mean, I remember doing, you know, extractions of nucleotides um, from corals and and bacteria. And you could see RNA in there. You just You just ignore it. It would just be in a different spot, be like blobbed up in the bottom or the top of your of your gel. Um, just just forget that. That's the RNA area. Stay away from that because no one knew what to do with it. But now we have a much better idea that is very important. So we have long non-coding RNAs. These things um, they help transcription factors. Uh, they help control alternate splicing of the genes. They are heavily edited, especially the A to I. Uh, they're also methylated. Um, there's one called ADAR, A-D-A-R-1, ADAR1, which binds near repetitive elements and helps fold up the DNA. All those repeats that are in the junk DNA, yeah, those things that Alus and the things that are just randomly scattered in the genome. It turns out that they're very important, that a lot, a lot of non-coding RNAs will match up to a lot of these repeat sequences and cause folding and bending of the DNA. Another thing RNA does, it... um. It can form triplex structures with dna it can lay down in the major groove of the dna double helix and interfere with transcription so it can turn genes on it can turn genes off non-coding rna's can also cluster in the cell to make what are called phase separated domains just like if you if you mix oil and water together it'll separate by phase well the same thing happens if you have a bunch of rna's that are similar cluster clump together they can literally cut off the outside of the cell and make a little pocket all by themselves, almost like a like an organelle, but it doesn't have a membrane around it. And the inside of that pocket will have a different chemistry than the cell itself. So all these little micro spots inside the cell that are doing all these very strange chemical and biological genetic things uh, because of RNAs, which turn out to be extremely important again. Non-coding RNAs affect cell fate. They uh, control memory. They... Um, uh, modify histones the, the the proteins that dna wraps around well histones have a long tail that can be heavily modified and they're often modified sometimes 50 20 times uh rnas tend to do that there are there are modification writers modification readers and modification erasers amongst the non-coding rnas they're doing incredible things in the cell only well, just learning this now We also now know that RNA could be inherited from one generation to the next. That is modified RNA. RNAs that are modified by environmental or cell state conditions can be passed on. Now, chromatin is um, DNA that's wrapped around histone protein, like beads on a string. We've known this for years, but what we now understand is that chromatin is absolutely coated with RNAs, RNAs that are passed from one generation to the next. In zebrafish, the methylation state of the sperm is preserved. The methylation state of the egg is erased. And then after fertilization, the female-contributed DNA is methylated according to the male-contributed DNA. So whatever genes are turned on or turned off in the male are turned and turned off, turned on or off in the babies that grow after fertilization. That means that information is passed from one generation to the next that's not in the DNA. That means that there's not a absolute difference between the reproductive cells and the body cells. That's called um, or the Weissman barrier that was thought of in the 1800s. Well, that's not true. In fact, now we're talking about Lamarckian-type inheritance where you can have the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Uh, that's not supposed to be true. That's not Darwinian. And that just makes the situation much, much, much more complicated. And that's the cool thing about biology, how complicated it is. Because I've said this a couple times. Let me say it one more time. If life were really simple, evolution might be possible. But the more complex life is, the less possible it is for it to evolve. The more likely it is that it was in fact designed by an incredibly intelligent designer. Now, that's not a proof. That's not, you know, it doesn't no proof in science anyway, but it's a statistical argument. The more complicated things are, the more likely it is that it had to be engineered. And so the way I imagine this is when God's inventing his life forms, he takes a cell, he puts all the proper components in there. He winds it up, he adds a little bit of energy, gets everything in the proper area, proper location, then he lets go and it's alive. Without that sort of, of an input, an intelligent input from a higher power, you're not going to get life. And if you did ever get life, which is not going to happen, but if you ever did, it would remain simple. Life is not going to figure out improbable chemical reactions. It's not going to figure out complicated ways to regulate information. It's going to remain simple, remain fast reproducing, and small with a with a compact um, genome. Because the things that have like you know parasitic elements in their DNA are going to reproduce more slowly. They should be selected away. One of the things that they thought of with RNA, when they first realized that cells producing a lot of RNA that doesn't go for proteins, well, they called it parasitic RNA. Oh, that's just the junk. See, that's just the stuff that infected us millions of years ago that we're still producing and that's not important. Oh, wait a minute. In biology, form follows function is a very important, um, idea. Many, many times if someone finds something, it's okay. There's something there. What does it do? It must do something. In fact, a lot of the things they thought were vestigial in the cell turn out to be not vestigial. And I think that junk DNA, that whole argument, is the vestigial organ. It's a modern vestigial organ argument. Back in the 1800s, they had a list of like 80 different things in the human body that don't do anything. Well, that's not true. We found functions for all of them. And now we're finding more and more functions for the so-called junk DNA. Because it's not junk. It never was junk. In fact, it's always been important. But evolutionary bias made people think that it's actually just nothing. Now it doesn't mean that every single thing in the cell has a function. That's not true. I mean, it doesn't have to be true. We could have parasitic DNA. We could have broken DNA. We could have DNA. That's just there for scaffolding. It doesn't have to actually have a specific function biochemically or genetically, but most of it should be functional. In fact, in the evolutionist, um, you probably should think that most of it's functional because selection should always be driving to get rid of the parasitic stuff, the broken stuff. Uh, Optimization should be happening over billions of years. And yet, at the same time, you can only optimize what already exists. You're not going to think of, or sorry, evolution is not going to think of strange, new, bizarre things that come out of nowhere that would never be predicted based on simple chemistry of the progenitor You're not going to get complex chemistry, complex genetic, complex structures that are tightly regulated in complex ways through a simple trial and error process. So, honestly, I think that the design idea, the fact that the thought that there's a God that created life is a much more powerful explanation than the evolutionary model. Now, granted, evolution does explain a lot. It sure does. Uh, There's a lot of things in evolution that That seem to fit very well with uh the the living world but that doesn't mean that it is the answer and when you look at what evolution cannot explain that's where you see the failure of evolution not with what it can explain that's not how science works in the same way in creationism i know that we spend me and my colleagues we spend a lot of time trying to find things that match up with what, what our beliefs are fine we do that all people do do that i'm just in fact, of human nature, but I'm also trying to find areas that I cannot explain and there are from, I can't explain. Sure. Yep. Look at that right there. That sure looks like an evolutionary thing, but what I've learned from experience is that when you take a deep dive and look at that thing, like jump DNA, parasitic RNA, non-coding RNA, you'll very often find that the story that you're first told, isn't the real story. And that is much more complicated, much less likely to have evolved than anyone at first thought so there you have my second attempt at explaining some of the hidden mysteries of the cell and things that are arguing against a very simplistic um belief in darwinian processes the cell is much more complex than than really even me that anyone imagined and therefore it was designed by the god of the bible there's more coming i'm going to film another episode on my way up to uh, tennessee this weekend i'm going to be talking about um, why you can't trace your family tree back to Adam and Eve. Yes, we do come from Adam and Eve, but you can't actually prove it genetically or genealogically. And that'll be a fun one. Uh, we'll see how well I do. I might have to come back in my back porch and film it again. We'll see what happens. Uh, um, trying to to make uh, short movies on the road is really hard. There's all sorts of things that, that can go wrong. The weather can go wrong. I'm very often forgetting things or something's not charged up or something breaks. Um. But I love doing this. I love talking about God's creation. I love encouraging people. And I love explaining things to people that maybe um, we didn't quite understand as we're going through school. Especially love contradicting things that were taught in textbooks. It's funny because textbooks are already 10 years old before they come out. And then if you've been out of college for like 10 or 20 years, I mean, you have 20, 30-year-old information in your head. And the world has changed. It's complicated. It's designed. It's designed by... God. Hey, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate people on Patreon and the people on buymeacoffee.com that are contributing to help. uh, Encourage me to keep doing this. Uh, My costs are basically covered and um, that's a great thing. If you want to help contribute, uh, there'll be links in the show notes. So I'm not asking, I'm just saying that it's there. Oh, by the way, uh, you really want to help, really, really, really want to help click like and share. That's how the internet works. And I'd appreciate it very much. You all have a wonderful day. Good cow. Wow! Hope they like me. That's a big old, mm, hey beast. Good. They're walking that way. I hope they don't turn around because my, my second camera is over there, and I have to run and grab it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.